0: Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption. A family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence. A family that has to confront the past and the present, and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is Part 19, Keys. Scott Henry rides the subway. He's wearing a black suit and carrying a shovel. A soldier going to war. A Navy SEAL on a rescue mission. People look at him with disinterest. A man in a suit carrying heavy tools is hardly the weirdest thing they've seen today. He has a black messenger bag across his back, slung over his shoulders. There's a pair of wire cutters inside. A set of work gloves. It is ten o'clock in the morning. He has two hours before the memorial. Two hours to penetrate the perimeter fence, to enter his old backyard, find the spot, and dig. He gets off the subway at Christopher Street, walks holding the shovel over his shoulder, like one of the seven dwarfs whistling his way to work. His shoes are made of a thin black leather that soaks quickly in the slush, but he doesn't slow or falter. He is heading for his childhood home for what feels like the last time. After today, he will not go back. It isn't healthy, A man must get on with his life, stop living in the past. He makes this promise to himself, even as he disappears into a city of memory and loss. Around him, the city roars with life. It doesn't care who lives and who dies. It is bigger than everyone put together. Keep moving. This is what the city demands. Go on, or we'll go on without you. Scott stands up a little straighter. He fixes his tie. He stops at Greenwich Street his eyes rising automatically to the gap in the sky that used to hold the towers. They were parents to all of us, mother and father. Even their destruction didn't stop the city for long. Three thousand people died. The streets were covered in ash. People took a deep breath, brushed themselves off, and kept going. At Bethune, his pace quickens. It is a quiet street, mostly empty of foot traffic. He reaches the fence and stops, lowering the shovel. He does not look around, but bends and takes the wire cutters from his bag. He is counting on the apathy of New Yorkers, the fact that people are reluctant to question a man who looks like he knows what he's doing. He's done the math in his head. Thirty seconds to cut the fence, a minute to walk to the tree, maybe ten minutes to dig up the can. The whole operation should be accomplished before anyone has a chance to think twice. If it occurs to him as he cuts the first heavy wire fastener that what he's doing isn't exactly rational, it doesn't slow him down. After months of apathy and emotional navel-gazing, he has decided that the key to his recovery is to commit entirely to a course of action, no matter how seemingly insane. Make a choice, see it through. He leans on his hands, squeezing the grips of the cutters, and snaps through the two remaining fasteners. Then, before he has time to change his mind, he lifts the chain link and, grabbing his shovel, slides through. He is in a long alley that separates the larger apartment buildings on his left from the brownstones on the right. He moves deliberately, shovel on his shoulder, to the side of his old home. There's a small wooden fence around it, and here he goes up and over. He stands for a moment scanning the windows around him, but sees no one. The view is the same as he remembers. Brick walls with curtained windows. Slices of New York living with its overstuffed, over-decorated quality, which comes from staying too long in one place. Standing there, he is at once thirty-five and seven. He is old and young. Standing there at this moment, there is no past, present, or future. There is only this place. He drops the messenger bag, walks over to the base of the tree. It has grown in twenty years taller, wider. But to Scott it looks the same, because he has grown too, and so his relationship to the tree remains proportional. He may as well be the boy set to bury his treasure instead of the man come to dig it up. Snow is piled on the ground around the base of the tree. Scott takes the shovel and scoops it away, exposing the hard brown earth. His breath collects in front of his mouth in puffs of white. Overhead, a cloud moves in front of the sun, and Scott places the blade of the shovel against the earth. He sets the heel of his dress shoe on top of it. In his mind, he says a silent prayer, again, not to God, but fate. We get so few opportunities in life to correct the mistakes we've made, to fix the things we've broken. When those opportunities arise, we must seize them without hesitation. This, too, is an act of faith. With all his might, Scott pushes down on the footplate and almost breaks his ankle. The ground is frozen solid. He lifts the shovel and brings the blade down hard. It makes a ringing sound. The concussion of the blow makes all the bones in his body jump one inch to the left. Fuck, he says out loud. He brings the blade down again. This time he manages to chip a tiny spear of earth, making a hole about the size of a quarter. At this rate, he'll be digging all day. He panics a little, raising the shovel and hammering into the earth a few more times with increasing recklessness. He should have brought a pickaxe. Sirens rise in the distance, and Scott freezes. But it is just another New York drive-by. This is a city of emergencies, always someone in danger, in trouble, in pain. He continues to work, sweat breaking out on his back and stomach. He takes off his suit jacket, lays it across a bush. Using the shovel like a hammer, he chips away at the earth, the cuffs of his pants getting dirty. He is ruining his shoes. Sweat soaks the collar of his shirt and freezes in the cold. What the hell are you doing? The voice comes from the apartment building behind him. Scott whips around, a guilty man caught in a spotlight. A man in an undershirt is leaning out of his window. I'm trying to sleep here! Sorry, says Scott. He turns back to the hole he's made. It's barely three inches deep. And just like that, the nerve goes out of him. For the first time, he realizes what he's doing, how crazy it is. He could be arrested. And for what? Some stupid childhood memory. A whim? So what if he stole his father's dog tags? Who knows if Joe even cared? He was probably glad to be rid of them. Against his will, Scott remembers the last real conversation he had with his father. It was a week before Joe died. He went to dialysis and refused to get back on the transport. He was demanding to go home. He didn't like this new nursing home. He was sick of being institutionalized. All he wanted was to move back in with his wife, to be a normal human being again, sleeping in his own bed. The trouble was, he was too sick. He had broken his hip recently. He had trouble standing without help. He couldn't walk without falling. At the same time, the lung cancer was advancing rapidly. There were more medications than a layperson could keep track of. The dialysis center called Scott on a Wednesday afternoon. His father had plopped himself down in the lobby and was refusing to budge. They asked Scott what they should do. If his father didn't get on the bus, they would have to call the police, and the police would take him to the emergency room. Scott told him to try bribing him with cigarettes. He asked to talk to his dad. The attendant handed over the phone. Hey, Pop, said Scott. His father grunted. It was like a piece of luggage, a suitcase no one wanted. What's going on? Scott asked him. I'm not going back there. Those people. There was a barely contained fury in his voice. Scott sighed. Joe had had a couple of strokes. His liver didn't process toxins that well. There were times when he wasn't exactly lucid. Was this one of those? Scott was at work. Everyone around him had the finely tuned hearing of a dog. He leaned down under his desk, spoke quietly. You've got to go back, Pop. If you don't like the nursing home you're in, we'll find you another. But right now, you have to go back. No! Scott could hear the resolution in his dad's voice. You don't survive a dozen life-threatening maladies by being weak-willed. Stubbornness was what had kept his dad going for the last few years. A grim determination not to give death the satisfaction of having the last word. I won't, he said. They treat me like an animal there. You have no idea. Scott could feel his co-workers eavesdropping, all the cubicles filled with witnesses, all of them listening silently, judging. Look, Pop, I swear, if you don't want to stay there, we'll find you someplace better. But right now, I don't know what else to do. I'm five hundred miles away. Just get on the bus, and I'll come up this weekend, and we'll straighten this whole thing out, okay? For me, please. His dad was silent on the other end of the line. Scott held his breath. One night, his father said. Yes, said Scott, absolutely. I'll call the social worker today, and we'll find you a better nursing home. He hung up and called his mother. I know, she said. He called me, too. I told him he's not coming here. I hope you were nicer than that. I can't take care of him. It's too much. Scott felt a surge of anger. We have to find him another place, he told his mother. Start making calls. His call waiting chimed. Mom he said. I'll call you back. He took the other call. It was the dialysis center. We got him on the bus, said the attendant. I told him I'd give him a pack of cigarettes. But once he got on, he started yelling. He says he's not going back. He wants to go home. He's in the lobby again. What could I do? We don't kidnap people. Scott felt dizzy. He sat there vibrating. His supervisor was staring back at him. Break time's over scott chewed his lip maybe if he didn't speak if he just put down the phone and hid under his desk the whole thing would resolve itself maybe if he packed his things and went home climbed under the bed somebody else would have to deal with it how many crises can one man handle how many impossible situations can one man solve put him on the phone said scott there was the sound of the attendant putting the phone down the sound of his father shambling over His voice, when he came on, was defiant but defeated at the same time. Hello? Hey, Pop, said Scott. How you doing? Silence. Look, we don't have a lot of options here. I'm not there. I can't come get you. I want to go home, to the apartment, your mother. She can't... You need more care than we can give you at home. I understand. She doesn't want me. None of you want me. That's not... We're just not equipped. You have so many needs. They put me in a diaper. I tell them I can go to the bathroom on my own, but they don't listen. I'm a grown man, and I'm wearing a diaper. Scott's supervisor made a get-back-to-work gesture. Scott gave him the finger and turned away. More than anything, he wanted the Angel of Mercy to come and take him away. Tell him he was free, that everything would be taken care of. Pop, he said. We're going to figure this out, I promise. But right now, you have to get on that bus. If you don't, they're going to call the cops, and the cops are going to take you to the emergency room. Is that what you want? Silence. He could sense his father's panic. Joe was trapped. His illness had trapped him. His lungs were dying. His kidneys were dead. He had a hard time walking on his own. He was making a last-ditch effort to regain control over his life, And yet, how much control could he get? I want to go home, he said. Scott took a deep breath. When he spoke, his tone was icy, hard. You can't go home, he said. You have two choices. Either you go back to the home or you go to the hospital. Which is it? He hoped that someday someone would forgive him for this, for bullying his own sick father, for strong-arming him. And yet, what choice did he have? He, too, was trapped. No hospitals, his father said. Then get on the bus and I'll call Mom and we'll figure this out. Come get me, his father said. Rescue me. Take me away. Scott closed his eyes. For a moment, he indulged the fantasy. He would fly to Portland. He would pick up his father and drive to the coast. They would live in a cottage. There would be peace and quiet. There'd be dignity and love. Without dialysis or medicine, his father would sicken gently. He would die in a rocking chair, sitting on the porch, looking out at the surf. If Scott were a better man, he would do this for his father. And yet, even as he thought this, he knew it was just a fantasy. Without the medication, his father would suffer. Pain would chew through his bones. Without dialysis, his body would fill with toxins. His brain would rot. There'd be no bucolic passing... Just a slow, torturous ruin. I can't, he said. You're too sick. You need to be someplace they can take care of you. His father's voice when it came was small, vulnerable. You take care of me. Scott couldn't breathe. Get on the bus, Pop, he said. I'll be there this weekend, and we'll figure this out. His father was quiet. Scott could feel his abandonment across the phone line, could hear the realization sinking in. Joe Henry was on his own. He had made his play for control, and it had failed. He would take the diaper and go back to the nursing home. He would hold his head high and return. His family didn't want him, and he wasn't about to beg. He would take the abuse, the mistreatment. He had survived worse and for longer. Okay, he said. I'm sorry to bother you. No, Pop, said Scott. You're no bother. But it was too late. His father was already gone. Scott lifts the shovel and brings it down to the frozen earth. He will do this for his father. Return the things he's stolen. Make it right. The shovel chimes against the iron ground, shovel handle blistering his palms. I swear to Christ, says the guy in the undershirt. You do that one more time, I'm calling the cops. Scott stands panting. It's no use. He'd need a blowtorch to dig this hole. He has failed. Failed himself. Failed his father. He throws the shovel into the bushes, grabs his coat and bag. Go fuck yourself, he tells the guy in the undershirt and jumps the low wooden fence. The memorial was set to begin. He shrugs back into his jacket, every move an expression of fury. He stoops and slips under the chain link, but one of the cut fasteners hooks his coat and rips it. He stands on Bethune Street, foiled. The wind has picked up, clouds blowing in across the Hudson. His shirt is soaked through from attacking the ground, and the slice of the wind cuts through to his core. Fuck, he says again. It may be the only word he ever uses from here on out. His mind has seized up, like an engine without oil. The gears are grinding, motor racing, but no real thoughts come. He has failed, and for the life of him, he can't figure out what to do next. He takes off his work clothes, drops them on the sidewalk. Shoving his hands into his pockets, he walks around the corner to bank. He stares up at his old brownstone. And then, because he can think of nothing else to do, he sits on the stoop, his bag beside him like a sad lost dog. He is wearing a black suit with a blue shirt and a striped tie. The stoop has been shoveled, cleared of snow, but the temperature of the concrete, the constrictive single-digit freeze, makes the step feel wet under his ass. He sits with his knees bent, elbows resting gently on the caps. In one of his jacket pockets, he finds a package of Twizzlers, and buttoning his coat against the wind, he peels off a spiral red stick and lifts it to his mouth. How can he say goodbye to his father now? This is what he's wondering as he sits in the cold. He watches people go by, wrapped up in Gore-Tex and wool. He watches them walk their shaggy dogs and carry their groceries in gloved hands, Every twenty minutes a Puerto Rican kid with a red knit beanie comes out of the supermarket and loads a stainless steel delivery box mounted to the front of a bicycle then pedals off into the slush. Women with comically long scarves push baby carriages navigating around snowbanks and sheets of black ice. He chews his licorice and thinks of the bar around the corner where fifteen minutes ago his father's memorial began. He should stand and go but he can't. He's not ready. His parents used to take them to the White Horse when they were kids, park them at a table with a coloring book or a jumble. They would have a drink and watch the city go by. On the street, a young woman in a bright yellow coat and hat with a baby carriage passes. Hey, she says. I know you. It is Joy from the supermarket and little Sam bundled up like a hot dog in a bun. Hi he says, coming out of his days. It snowed. She adjusts her bright yellow hat. She looks like a sunflower. Yes, it did. She looks up at the brownstone behind him. Is this it? She says. The old homestead? He nods. Thirteen years. That's how long we lived here. Me and my brother and my mom and dad. We played stoop ball on this stoop and watched the Halloween parade go by. I went to PS41 and Grace Church School. My brother got his skateboard stolen by a kid with a Swiss Army knife. Took him five minutes to find the blade. He kept pulling out the corkscrew, the screwdriver, the tweezers. You're making it up. I wish. He holds out his package of licorice. Twizzler, he says. She shakes her head. You know what they say about taking candy from strangers, she says. What kind of example would I be setting for young Sam? Her cheeks are red from the cold, the tip of her nose. He wants to put his lips to it and warm her with his breath. But we're not strangers, he says. We met the night before last. You're Joy, and I'm Scott. From his carriage, little Sam watches the cars go by. Scott wonders what it would be like to be a baby again, to see everything for the first time. Would the world be simpler or more complex? Joy reaches out, takes a piece of licorice. Well, she says, if we're not strangers. He smiles, watches her take a bite. Her lipstick is the exact color of the licorice. He wants to take the baby from the stroller and climb in, fasten the little seatbelt and fall asleep to the gentle rolling of the wheels. How's your husband? he asks. Far away, she says, and sticks out her lower lip. But you're fine, right? Aren't you this sturdy frontierswoman the only child self-sufficient in all things. She paws a strand of hair from her face, tucks it back up under her hat. It gets cold at night, she says. Even us frontier women need a husband to warm up the bed sometimes, not to mention fight off the Indians. He watches the Puerto Rican kid pedal up on his delivery bike. Rain, shine, snow, or sleet. People need their groceries. Looking at him, Joy notices the dirt on Scott's pants, the ripped jacket. I don't mean to pry, she says, but what happened to you? At first, he doesn't know what she's asking. Everything? The story of his life? But then he sees where she's looking, and for the first time notices what he's done to his suit. I was digging, he says. Digging? In a suit? It's a long story. She looks at him. She is learning what everyone else already knows. That Scott is not a particularly casual person. That he doesn't know how to make small talk, to smile and talk about the weather. You're not one of those crazy people, are you? She says. Who seem normal, then mail you packages of human hair? No, I'm just the regular kind of crazy. Standard maladjusted, issues with authority, a healthy amount of denial and self-destructive instincts. Plus all the grief. She looks at him. There's something in his face she recognizes, something familiar, something that makes her want to help him. He reminds her of someone, an old boyfriend. She doesn't know, but she feels the need to reach out, to help him. She pulls the baby carriage to the foot of the stairs and sits down next to him. Hi, she says. Hi, he says. Now that she's this close, he can't look at her. It takes all his strength just to hold himself together. I'm Joy, she says. I know. And you're this crazy guy I met in the supermarket. And I don't mean to be forward, but there is something really wrong with you. He nods. His face is burning, and he is blinking to keep from crying. He feels like if he relaxes, even for a second he will fall apart. He will start to leak like a dam, and then he won't be able to stop. Joy takes a deep breath puts her hand on his arm. She reaches out to him in sympathy, one human being to another, a stranger bridging the gap. The feel of her hand, the warmth, the firmness of her touch is all it takes. He is a house of cards. My dad. He begins. She waits. Died. I'm sorry. And, uh... Tears are forming in the corners of his eyes. His, um... Memorial service, like a party, is today. Everything around him is liquid now. The egg of sorrow has cracked, and it is worse than ever, making a tragic sticky mess of everything. Sorrow coats the street, the girl, the baby, like glue, sticking Scott to this stoop, to this place, this moment. What time? Joy wants to know. Now, he says. It, um... Started about a half hour ago. You should go. I know. You should go. He nods. Where is it? Around the corner? The White House Tavern? His voice cracks. He is twelve years old again, going through changes. Together they watch the delivery boy ride off into the slush. My dad died when I was sixteen, says Joy. He nods. She is saying, you're not alone. We are all part of the secret society, the whole human race. It is a culture of death and loss, a secret club of grief. I can't go, he says. Not without them. Without what? He looks her in the eye. There's a part of him, internal, subterranean, that embraces failure. Because it is easier to give up than to persevere easier to see the world as a place where malevolent forces conspire to keep a good man down. Where quitting isn't just an option. It is the only option. Because the alternative is complete and utter annihilation. And yet what kind of man would he be if he didn't try? So he tells her. Everything. His dead father, the dog tags. He explains his plan, the clipped fence, the shovel, and the setbacks, the frozen earth, the man in the undershirt. When he's finished, she doesn't know what to say. How do you know they're even still there, she says. Because I'm on a quest. She thinks about this. You are a little crazy, aren't you? I'm usually not this bad, but I think I'm going through a rough patch. Yes, I'd say you are. She stands and brushes at the seat of her pants. Wait here. She takes her baby from the stroller and climbs the steps to the front door. He stands. What are you doing? She rings the bell. Let me do the talking, she says. He considers bolting, turning and racing down the street in his ruined dress shoes, a half-frozen man, arms pumping, heading God knows where. But he doesn't. The door opens. A man is standing there, early fifties, and there's a little girl behind him, peering through his legs. Hi, says Joy. I'm Joy. Stay inside, honey, the man says to his daughter. To Joy, he says, can I help you? I live around the corner, she says. And this is going to sound weird, but my friend grew up here. I can't let you in, he says quickly. No, says Joy. We were just, my friend buried something in the yard when he was a kid, something of his dad's. And it's his father's memorial service today. He wondered, the dog tags, says the man. They stare at him. The man puts his hand on his daughter's head. We found them when we were redoing the yard a couple of years ago. My son thought they were the coolest thing ever. Scott's heart is in his throat. Do you still have them? asks Joy. He nods, looks at Scott. My dad died last year, too, he says. Scott nods. He, too, is in the club, the Secret Society of Lost Fathers. I'm sorry. He says. Scott's throat is dry. The words are almost a croak. What's your father's name? says the man. Henry. Joe Henry. The man nods. Wait here. He closes the door. They hear him climbing the stairs. I don't know what to say, says Scott. We need these things, says Joy. These rituals, memorials, they help us say goodbye. Otherwise, it just lingers. People die and we pretend they're just missing, and it drags on for years, this level of denial, waiting for them to come back. Trust me. Scott closes his eyes. He is remembering how every year on January 2nd in San Francisco, businessmen throw the pages of last year's paper calendars out the window. For half an hour, the downtown streets fill with a flurry of white, dates and appointments all floating to the ground. It is a moment where time literally flies, All of last year's activities filling the air. The highs and lows, the pithy aphorisms, all the words of the day, the major holidays, professional milestones. If you stand on the street and look up, all you see is time. It descends gently from the sky, fluttering in the breeze. It fills the gutters, the detritus of another year, all the days and nights now gone. Getting rid of it makes people feel lighter, cleansed, They are casting off the weight of what came before. This is what Scott thinks as he stares out at the blanket of white. But what about the things you don't want to let go of? What if letting go of the past feels like a betrayal, an abandonment? Doesn't he owe it to his father to never say goodbye? Overhead, the sky is cloudless and so brilliantly blue it hurts. In the cold, everything feels sharper, like each breath he takes cuts him in some way. You are alive, thinks Scott. Right now, in this moment, in this one. He wants to stop the clock, to hold on to this feeling, this crazy, beautiful, flushed agony. But he can't. It, too, is destined to recede. Years from now, he will remember that there was a moment, here. But he will not remember what it felt like. Right now, though, standing on a New York City street corner, everything is crisp and real. This woman is his woman, and this baby is his baby, and he is a man in the prime of his life in a black suit with dirt on his pants and blisters on his hands from trying to burrow down into the frozen earth. Any second now, the door will open, and his grail will appear. It will happen because it has to. The door opens, and the man and the little girl are standing there. My son is going to be upset, says the man, but he'll understand. He holds up the dog tags. They've been cleaned, polished. Scott reaches for them. There's a shovel in my backyard, says the man. Scott freezes. It looks like someone tried to dig a hole in packed earth in February, says the man, his body language hostile now, guarded. Bad idea. Scott looks at the dog tags, then at the man's face. It is a moneyed face. Nice skin, gray hair well cut. The next few seconds are critical. Scott takes a deep breath, tries not to panic. He is on a quest, and a troll is testing him. He must not fail. That was a mistake, is what that was, says Scott. An error in judgment. He hasn't been himself recently, says Joy. Has he, honey? She coos to the baby. The man watches her, a young mother, with a beautiful child, happy, smiling, and softens. His daughter is behind him in the hallway, spinning in circles, making herself dizzy. I stole them, says Scott. He was my father, and I stole from him. I have to bring them back. The man takes a deep breath, sighs. You're lucky I understand grief, he says, or you'd be talking to the cops right now. And then just like that, He tosses the dog tags to Scott and closes the door. Scott's heart surges. The dog tags are smooth in his hand, worn. He holds them up, reads his father's name. It is there, worn but readable. Joe Henry. Proof. The man lived. He was here. He mattered. Scott starts to cry. He did it. He is not a fuck-up. He is a good son. Amazing, says Joy, because she is always amazed by the kindness of strangers, the small heroic things they do every day. What time is it? he asks, wiping his eyes, the tears already freezing against his skin. Joy checks her watch. Twelve fifty-five. Scott panics. He is so late. The day has gotten away from him. I have to go. He starts down the stairs. Wait, says Joy. Are you going to be okay? Okay. Thank you, he calls, his feet pounding against the pavement. He will be running soon, tripping into full speed. The quest isn't over. He has found the grail, but now he must deliver it. Thank you so much, he shouts, leaning into the wind. I mean it! Joy watches him go, shaking her head. What a strange man, she says to her baby. Sam smiles at her with those big brown eyes. For the thousandth time today, she falls in love with her baby all over again. He is her man, when her man is away, which is always. What a strange, strange man, she coos, trying to make Sam laugh. Then she sees Scott's bag on the stoop, a black messenger bag to be worn over the shoulder. Wait, she cries, turning to look for Scott. But he's already gone. She picks up the bag, not knowing. What is her obligation here? To a man she barely knows? An emotionally unstable man on his way to a memorial? Already she has done more than most. Already she has crossed lines that most New Yorkers wouldn't even look at. But deep down, she is a small-town girl. A woman with manners, who believes in helping people. A woman who believes that the good things you do in life come back to you. So she lowers Sam into the warmth of his carriage. Hangs the bag over the handles. The White Horse Tavern. She thinks. It is four blocks from here. She will bring Scott his bag and then take the baby home. It is bath day, and she will peel her son like an onion, pulling off his tiny coat, his gloves, and mittens. She will lower Sam into the warm water of the kitchen sink, will anoint him with hypoallergenic shampoos, gently washing every nook and crevice. Then she will dry him with terry cloth as if he is royalty, a tiny king to be pampered and inspected. She will powder his bottom and sing him to sleep. She releases the brake on the baby carriage, heading east. Come on, Sam, she says. Good deeds are always rewarded. Remember that? This is what Joy believes is true, even though she cannot prove it. Except in this case, she is 100% wrong.